We want to continue preaching from the book of Acts today. And the book of Acts is fascinating in a number of ways, not just because it's the Word of, of God, but because it is the only book of the history of the first century church, and because it is not just des- descriptive of what took place, but it is also prescriptive, and that means that it tells us how we should do church and what we should expect as we go through life. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to uh, cover 22 verses in this, this sermon today, and uh, I'm not going to read them all up front, I'm just going to read the first six verses, and then I'll let you be seated. But Acts chapter 9, verse number 1 says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. God bless you. You may be seated today. I love Kansas City. I lived in the Kansas City metro area from 1988 to 19. 95, when my wife and I got married, moved to St. Louis, but there was always something special for me about Kansas City, and with all of the amenities and the, the fact that St. Louis is a bigger metropolitan area, more people, it still was for me that Kansas City was special, and, and I don't know how much you know about Kansas City, a lot of times people live in places and they really don't know the history. They don't know a lot of what goes on, and, and, I, and I'm not going to go through all the history of Kansas City, but one of the things that is fascinating because of the time period uh, that it took place from 19, or 1843 to 1869, Kansas City was the jumping off place for people who wanted a new life, people who were looking for a new life, a new beginning, and The way that happened is that they would show up in Independence, Missouri, they would get their wagons, they would get all of their goods together, and they would begin the process of going to either Oregon, California, or Santa Fe. And in fact, in recent times, I've discovered that they didn't just split up from Independence, but they actually came to Olathe. And Olathe was the last place where they would begin their journey. The Santa Fe Trail would begin that southwestern journey. And the California and Oregon Trails would begin the straight or the more due west journey. And then later it would split as people would go to north to Oregon or continue straight on west to California. But in that time period of roughly 25 to 27 years, over 500,000 people came here to Kansas City looking for a new life. Today, Kansas City is home to 2.1 to 2.3 million people, depending on how you break up the metropolitan area. And what I would tell you is, in that 
2.1 to 2.3 million people, the majority, the vast majority of those people still need a new life. They're not coming here necessarily because they're looking for new opportunities or new jobs. Sometimes they do, but they need a new spiritual life. Now, why would I say that? Because on any given Sunday, less than 20% of that 2.3 million people show up for church anywhere. Church of any kind, not just Christian, but any kind of church, less than 20% show up at a church on any given Sunday. The solution for that problem of people not going to church is, one of those solutions is church planting and starting new churches like what we did in 2019 as we launched Cross Church. New churches, on average, will bring in and reach more people than large churches. In fact, a new church plant will reach one new person every year for every ten people that attend that church. An established church will reach one new person for every 100 people that attend that church. So that means that new churches are the way to see more people saved. There's something enthusiastic and exciting and People get, uh, get motivated when they're a small church because they want to see more people come in. And as you look around today, and with, with half our congregation looks like they're gone today, hopefully you're motivated to have more people here next week. I am. Maybe that's just because I'm here looking that way, and you're looking at, at me, and you only see one person every week up here. But I would rather all of these chairs be filled. And, and that's what happens in a small church is people get motivated to reach people with the gospel because there's something about that newness that makes them excited. So as I was getting ready to launch, I, I met a man here in Olathe. And he has a technology and, and marketing company. And I met with, uh, with him and his partners and. They all have church backgrounds. In fact, they're all ordained ministers in a particular church denomination. And as I was talking to them about launching this church, they asked some questions of me. And he said, who is, one of the guys said, who is your audience besides everyone? And what he was really getting at is that in, in, in today's culture, if you want to reach people, if you want to, to start a church, you can't try to reach everybody. Because the assumption is, is if you're trying to reach everybody, you'll reach nobody. So you have to target your audience to a, a certain demographic, a, a certain age, or a certain stage of life. And it's got to be young families with, or young married couples with young kids, and then the way you do that is then you start this great kids ministry and then you, you reach that kind of people or you start a, a church where you're trying to reach unmarried millennials or whatever that demographic is or even that you reach a certain ethnic group. But you can't try to reach all ethnic groups, you've got to reach one. You can't, you can't do it all. It's like, so who is your audience besides everyone? Well, the reality for me is Everybody is our audience. That I, I didn't come to Kansas City, and to, specifically to Olathe, to go, well, we'll just try to reach one kind of person, one group of people, but we want to reach everybody. 
And he asked the other, the follow-up question, and well, what makes you different? And as I wrestled with that and I thought about what makes us different, the reality of what we are seeking to accomplish is this, is that we are seeking for people to have a deeper experience and a relationship with God. That we want them to experience something different. We want them to see something different. We want them to have a different encounter with Jesus Christ than you may get at just an average church. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But why do we still need more churches in 2022? Recent study came out just a few years ago that said only 24% of people in the United States believe the Bible is the literal Word of God. 24%. So one out of every four people that you meet, only one of those will believe the Bible is literally the Word of God. There's nuances to that and and variations of what that looks like. But one in four. Let me read something for you here. Stunning new results from the American Worldview Inventory of 2020 produced by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that the percentage of Americans who believe that the Bible is the inspired true Word of God is down more than 21 percentage points in the last 20 years. This parallel is similarly precipitous with a 50% decrease in people who have a biblical worldview go on to say that only 6% of the population of the United States has a biblical worldview. Now what that means is this, is that the way in which they view the world and the way in which they view life and the way in which they view salvation or lostness or any aspect of theology in relation to God, only 6% would have a biblical worldview. I don't know if you know this, but 6% is pretty bad. Then when when you're talking to somebody, only 6 in 100 are going to believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God, and because of that, that they view their world through the lens of the Bible. The article goes on to say that 20% of people in America claim to be Roman Catholic, and out of people who claim to be Roman Catholic, out of that 20% or some 60 plus million people, only 1% of that group has a biblical worldview. 8% of people in the United States claim to belong to some mainline denomination, and of that group, Only 8% of that group have a biblical worldview. And in fact, when you take it even another step up and and, and you look at people who claim to be born again, now keep in mind, this is not necessarily the biblical definition of born again, which we've talked about over the last few weeks. But out of people who claim to be truly following Jesus Christ, only 33% of those Actually, 19% of those have a biblical worldview. And while that's low, that's still 
three times the national average. What I would tell you is this, we have a big mission to fulfill. That there is a big task for you and I to accomplish. There is a big task for all who profess true faith in Jesus Christ, who are followers of the one true and living God, who are truly born again. We have a big mission to fulfill. The question is, how can we accomplish that mission? How can we see God's plan fulfilled And what is even God's plan? What I would tell you is that you and I are His plan. That the the local church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. That angels will not preach the gospel. God is not going to write it in the sky. That the only way people are going to come to a true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is if you and I tell them. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It takes people. Our text takes place in a time of persecution of the church. It has been ramping up for the past number of years. And of course in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is persecuted. He's killed. He's stoned to death. And the Bible says that Saul, who our text was about, was standing by at Stephen's desk holding the coats and the cloaks of those who were casting stones to make it easier for them. And this Saul was zealous for Judaism. In other words, he was gung-ho for the God of the Jews and the religiosity of the Jews. And anything that was not of that, he was seeking to stamp out. But I want to tell you that the gospel transforms lives. That the gospel changes lives I want to give you three stages today in this circle of life that you see on the screen behind me. The first is this, is that people must encounter the presence and the power of Jesus. Nobody gets saved without encountering the presence and the power of Jesus. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. It is clear that Paul has an encounter with Jesus. And suffice it to say that if you and I were in that scenario, that we're traveling down the road and a great light shines out of heaven and knocks us to our knees and a voice speaks to us, it would be a memorable encounter. We wouldn't forget that anytime soon. And, but he, he falls to the ground and he hears the voice and he says, Who art thou, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. That Saul, you're traveling around trying to kill and stamp out people who are serving me and following me. And this encounter changes his life. This encounter with Jesus changes his viewpoint. Saul wasn't swayed by Stephen's impassioned pleas in Acts chapter 7 as he's he's letting it rip. He's preaching a powerful message of 
of conviction. And Saul isn't changed by that at all. It does nothing for him. He ignores everything Stephen is saying. It only makes him matter. But when Jesus shows up, it changes everything. And what I would tell you, when Jesus shows up in a person's life, it will change everything. When they truly have an encounter with Jesus Christ, everything changes. People need to encounter Jesus. When they come to church, they should feel something different. That it shouldn't be no different than going to a show. It shouldn't be no di- any different than going to a movie. But there should be something different when people show up. It's not a concert, but it should be an encounter with Jesus Christ. Acts 8, we looked at last week, Philip preached Jesus. But they only believed after they saw the miracles. That his message didn't change their mind. The miraculous changed their minds. I would tell you that we need the miraculous. I was with three other preachers yesterday in Signs and wonders and miracles came up in, in the course of our conversation. And, and it was pretty much unanimous among the four of us as we talked that we don't see signs and miracles and wonders like we want to see them. That when you, when you hear stories of missionaries in third world countries or overseas, it seems like every other day somebody who's lame is getting up and walking and somebody who's blind, their eyes are being opened and they see and and somebody who's deaf, their ears are unstopped. It's all the time. But here in North America, it's few and far between. I've seen miracles in my lifetime, but nothing like what I hear from my grandparents' generation. Nothing to the magnitude of what used to be even here. And years ago, I came up with a a matrix as to, to what precipitates God doing a miracle. And there, There's a lot of things that go into that. One is... There has to be a need. I've seen a lot of people, they want to see the miraculous in their life. They just don't want to have any problems. Anybody ever been there? You can't get healed unless you're sick. (laughs) And who wants to be sick? You can't have God provide for you supernaturally unless you're broke. And we don't want to be broke. But even with all of that, there's still an abundance of needs in any gathering. You get two people together, somebody's got a problem. Somebody has a need. They they have need of God to do something in their life. But it can't be just the presence of a need or then we wouldn't have any needs, right? God would just take care of all of our needs. We show up for church, we've got a need, boom, it's all done. And so I looked at this and 
It's got to be part of the answer is that God is sovereign, which means he gets to pick and choose when he answers your need. He picks his timing and he picks whether or not he does or doesn't answer and meet your need. The third piece of this is maybe the most important is that if you don't have faith, God doesn't act. I've seen God act when I didn't have much faith. But most of the time, there has to be not only the presence of the need, but the belief that God can and will take care of your problem. And then as I I was talking to these guys yesterday, I, I thought about the biblical text, and I'm way off my notes right now. But if you look in the New Testament, You look at the ministry of Jesus, early on in his ministry, he's constantly telling people when he heals them or delivers them, he's like, hey, don't go and tell anybody about this. And every time they ignore him, they go and tell people anyway. I would tell you that there is an evangelistic aspect to God's healing and his deliverance and his miraculous why does he do the miraculous in acts 3 it's because there's a 5,000 men revival coming in acts 4 why does he do the miraculous in acts 8 it's because the gospel was preached but it's only the miracles that are going to cause people to believe the gospel and what i have discovered here and, and through observation is this is that Jesus, when he does the miraculous in our lives, and I'm meddling now, but when he does the miraculous in our lives, instead of what he did in the Gospels where he's saying, don't go and tell anybody, now he's saying, go and tell everybody. And we're still disobeying. Just like they disobeyed when he told them not to tell, we're disobeying when he tells us to go and tell. Why would God do the miraculous in your life if you're going to just keep it for yourself and not give God glory? Why would he do the miraculous in your life if you're not going to go and and tell everybody, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. I I told this story when I was preaching on Acts, from Acts chapter 3, one miracle at a church in Louisiana where I grew up and 200 people came to know Jesus Christ because they told everybody. A new convert who had been saved one week and they, God healed his daughter who they said would never walk. And everybody that they met, every family member they told, look what Jesus did. I would tell you though, people need an encounter with Jesus. We need the miraculous here. And I don't bring the miraculous I don't bring signs and wonders. God may choose to work through me, but he may choose to work through you. But we need to see God at work. It is that encounter with the presence and power of Jesus that will cause people's lives to be transformed. It will cause them to want to know who he is. It's why I say all the time when somebody gives you a prayer request, pray right there. 
Wherever you are, pray. In the middle of the restaurant, in the middle of a seminar, pray right there because the presence and power of Jesus can touch them and change their life. Secondly, we need to experience the transformation of Jesus. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. It is possible to encounter Jesus and not experience salvation. God's plan is this, is that when you encounter Him, it should lead to a new birth experience. I've seen people, though, whether it's first-time guests or people who not, they're not even sure that they believe in God, I've seen them get miracles. And walk back out going, got what I came for. And never served Jesus Christ. That that encounter with Jesus doesn't automatically equal transformation, but it should lead to that. That when people truly encounter Him, it should lead them to experience the transformation and the salvation of Jesus Christ. It is the pattern, as I've said numerous times, of the book of Acts, preach the gospel. Miracles, signs, and wonders, people believe. It is the way that God has ordained it. And the church exists to be a place of transformation. It's why we exist. I'll throw this out here. A couple of people in the room know about this already. And I won't go into any many details, but... There's a building here in Olathe that from 2018, when we moved to town, I've wanted this building for Cross Church. Now, it's much bigger than what we need, and so there's a lot of things that we would do with that space. And 2019, at a church conference, Somebody spoke a word as they were preaching or at the end of the service. I don't remember exactly, but, but I wrote it down in my one note. It's time stamped, October 26, 2019. And I wrote it. This is what I wrote. Lord, provide this building for free or the money to buy it. But let it be a place. It's the hospital for the lost. Because it, it should be a place of transformation. And in the last month and a half, God has brought that whole story back. And I mentioned a few weeks ago, we sang uh, this song in the first verse. is walking around these walls. I thought by now they'd fall. When we, when we got ready to sing that the first time, I said, I may tell you the reason why this song was on my heart. February 14, I started a 
Jericho march around that building one time a day, Monday through Saturday, seven times on Sunday. That Thursday, man, we had a big snowstorm. My wife said, you're going to go walk around? I said, I'm, I'm walking around. I'm not stopping. Friday, the snowstorm was over, but it was actually worse as the wind was blowing all the snow off the back of the building right into my face as I was walking around. There's already been a couple of God things that have happened as there are some people working on raising millions of dollars to buy this building. Whether that, and I'm believing for it, and if it doesn't happen, hey, God's already shown me he's involved in the process. But if it happens, it can't be just so we have a cool building. We have a nice building. But it's got to be about transformation. That the presence and the power of God must be present. That people must come into our services and come in to wherever we are and experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ. As I was in the process of getting ready to launch the church, I visited a number of churches in the area. Various denominations, various backgrounds. From a charismatic church to a United Methodist church, people that I had met, they were like, hey, come check out our church. And so I was going to see what they were doing. Typically focused on churches that were newer because we're getting ready to launch and seeing what they're doing in these new places and Portable setups, people meeting in schools. And I've got video and I've got pictures of things that surprised me from my background. And I and I and I I get it a little bit working with people that are newer to the faith and But what I was amazed at is that even in churches that were established, people would come in and they were just there. They're not worshiping God. They're not singing along. They're doing nothing. Went to one church. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was about 200 people in the room maybe. Kids were in a separate part. This was in, a, this was in an elementary school. And it wasn't even as enthusiastic as a concert. They're just standing there, drinking coffee, chatting away, punching the clock, checking off a box. There probably have been services here where it's like that. Not much happening. But I would tell you, that when people encounter Jesus Christ, they should experience His transformation. Amen. That hearts and lives should be changed and transformed when they encounter Jesus. And we're not here just to say that we had a service. 
We're not here just to say that I preached a sermon. We're not here to say that we, had, we sang a few songs, but we should be here to encounter Jesus Christ so that people's hearts and lives will be changed and transformed with the gospel. That the sick will leave well. And those who are bound would leave delivered. And those who are lost would leave saved. That's why we are here. Would you close your eyes? Would you just lift your hands for a moment to the Lord right now? Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you for the power of your presence that I feel in the room right now. God, I pray that you would be at work in us, that you would change and transform us by the gospel, Lord, into everything you want us to be, Lord, that you would indeed set us on fire for you so that we would come in and that we would wholeheartedly worship you, that that our service to you would be, Lord, with all of our heart and all of our soul, all of our might, all of our strength. Let your spirit work in us, God, to make us into what you want us to be. We want to see an outpouring of your spirit. We don't want to just have church and mark off the calendar, but we want to experience you. We want people to experience you and to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Work in your people, Lord. Work in me until you make us everything that you want us to be. God, we need your presence and your power to be at work in us. We need your presence and your power to be at work in us. We give you praise, Lord. We give you praise, Lord. We give you praise, Lord. We give you praise. Third thing is that we are to engage in the mission of Jesus. The Lord said to Ananias in verse 15, Go For he, speaking of Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard Him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon His name? And has He not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He goes into Damascus and he is saved, he's baptized, and and God had already told Ananias, he said, I will show him what great things he's going to suffer for my name. He is a chosen vessel unto me. And immediately he began preaching. Just like Saul, you and I are saved for service. We're saved to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be engaged in His mission. Paul, as he would later be renamed, 
He wasn't perfect. He had a lot of issues. But he was on mission. And when he couldn't overcome the prejudice of the people in Damascus because they were skeptical of his salvation, he went to the next town and began to preach Jesus. And revival came. That you and I don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be everything God wants us to be, but we do have to engage in His mission. God doesn't immediately take us to heaven because He has a purpose for us. And if God immediately took everybody to heaven who got saved, then there wouldn't be one generation and it would stop. But there is a mission for you and I to be part of that God is calling us to be on mission. God uses people He doesn't use angels. He doesn't use billboards. He uses people. And as I hurry to a close, understand this. The Great Commission is not optional. The Great Commission is to make disciples. I would also tell you that when you Get on mission, you'll live different. It will change your life. I may be getting ahead of myself in my conclusion, but let me just say this. I was 46 years old when we moved to Olathe. And for the majority of those 46 years, I was saved. I received the Holy Ghost at the age of 11 baptized the next week and in that 35 or so years I very rarely shared the gospel especially the last 20 of those years I was full time in ministry not at a local church but doing parachurch ministry I, mean, I was training people to do ministry And when I would fly places, stick my headphones in, even if I wasn't listening to anything. I could be reading a book on my tablet or whatever, but I'd put headphones in because I didn't want to talk to people. Because that airplane ride, that was my time to catch up on my reading or whatever else I was doing. And when I would go to the bank, I would go to the drive-thru because I don't have time to talk to people. I'm, te- I'm busy teaching people how to reach the world. <laughs> but when I moved here, I didn't go through the self-checkout line. I'd stand behind ten people just to check out at the store so I could talk to somebody build a relationship. I quit going through the drive-thru at the bank. I'd go stand in line. and Had at least one bank manager show up at one of our preview services. 
I lived different when I got on mission. That opportunities where before I wouldn't talk to waiters and waitresses, I'd just tell them what I wanted. I wasn't striking up a conversation. Now I was looking for opportunity to bring up Jesus. You will live different when you are on mission for Jesus. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. The question I would ask is, do you? Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, he says, For we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How better than for His purpose to be our purpose and His mission to be our mission, and that is to seek and to save the lost. So the circle of life is this, is that we encounter His presence power. We experience transformation and salvation and then we engage in his mission so that others can encounter his presence and power and experience salvation and engage in his mission so that others can encounter his presence and power and experience salvation and engage in his mission. It is what God has called us to do. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus wrote this. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. It is not a question of whether there are people who need Jesus. It's not even a question of whether there are people who want Jesus. The shortage is not on the need. The shortage is not on the opportunity. The shortage is on laborers. A couple of years ago, as I was praying through this passage and thinking about it, I, I had a moment of enlightenment as I thought about the fact that there are a lot of people who could say they're in the harvest. I don't want to just be in the harvest. I'm now around lost people all the time. I go to Chamber of Commerce events and I'm constantly around people. And my sole reason for doing that is not because I want them to know who I am, but I want them to know who Jesus is. And so I go and I hang out. Belky, we're in the harvest through stuff we do at Mission Southside and Fountain Ridge. And... But it's not enough just to be in the harvest. But I want to be an effective laborer in the that I want to be aware of when people are hungry and people are ready to receive it and I'm there with an, op- to sh- an opportunity to share the gospel.
I've mentioned for 20 years I didn't do evangelism. Partly because I created an excuse for myself. Partly because the churches I attended were established churches and they really weren't pushing it that much. But none of that's an excuse because it's in the Word of God. My challenge to you today is this. It's to engage in His mission. To be an be an effective laborer in the harvest. Would you stand together? I could tell you of stories of people both here in this room and people that are not here that we've seen God's transforming power at work in their lives since we've been here. Some of you can testify to what God has done in your life. I've used this before. It's one of my favorite sayings. Leonard Ravenhill, the 20th century revivalist, said if you want to be on fire for God, spend 15 minutes a day talking to God in prayer. Spend 15 minutes a day letting God talk to you through His Word. Spend 15 minutes a day talking to the lost about God. You can't help when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and you see them come to faith and come and experience His salvation. It will stoke your fires and it will motivate you to share the gospel. bow your heads. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for what you have done, Lord, in us. I pray, Lord, that the power of your Spirit, Lord, would cause us to draw close to you. I pray, Lord, that the power of your Spirit would cause us to be everything that you have called us to be. God, I pray that you would help us, or who, people who are in this room, or to fully encounter you and to fully experience your salvation if we haven't. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to know you in a greater way. God, I pray that you would help us to engage in your mission, Lord, every day, all day, we run into people who need to know you people who aren't following you or they're not following you to the level that they should and that you have called them to. Lord, help us to engage in your mission to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity to gather in your presence and to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for your your spirit and your power that is at work in us. Lord, we need a fresh wind of your presence. We need your spirit to work in us. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus.